All right, kids may go. All right. We have been working our way through the book of Matthew, and uh, we're a little over halfway there, and we're going to continue that journey today, finding ourselves in Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to take 13 to 20. So not too bad. Not too bad. It's maybe a slight ring on the top, Rich. If you want to pull it down a little. <clears throat> Matthew 16, 13 to 20, which says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged his disciples to tell nobody that he was the Christ, which is the weirdest part of the whole thing. Like, well, like when you're hearing things like this come from Jesus, and even Peter's confession, like you, you'd think it'd be like, hey, go tell anybody and everybody what you just heard, right? And it's like he strictly told them, we'll, we'll come to it, but... A little odd, right? Uh, obviously, this is a ridiculously amazing piece of scripture. I feel completely blessed on one hand that this fell on me, and on the other hand, a little bit terrified because it's hard to do something like this justice, you know? There's just so much um, heavy, just profound realities that are found right here, but we're going we're gonna to do our best. So um, we, typically, we typically see... Jesus, at least up to this point, leading these 12 men and teaching these 12 men and, and guiding these 12 men into a knowledge of him. And in attempting to do that, there's a lot of questions that come with that. I mean, so many of the things that Jesus said were so perplexing, right? And so typically we see teachings, whether it be through a parable or, um, you know, an analogy or whatever, and then they're looking for clarification. They're asking questions to gain understanding of, of what it is. And, and yet here today we see Jesus asking them a couple of questions. And the first one is in verse 13, who do people say that the Son of Man is? In other words, like what's the word on the street concerning me? Now, do we think that Jesus doesn't already know the answer to this? Like it's, he probably does, right? Like it's almost as if he wants to hear his disciples acknowledge the false claims that are going on around them, right? By the populace. So uh, the son of man um, is how Jesus refers to himself. Who do they say that the son of man is? And that is a title that we see Jesus using of himself more than any other title, Super 
Interesting. So why, why the emphasis here in how he asks this question as far as how people are identifying who he is? Who do they say the Son of Man uh, is? What does it mean? And, and simply put, it means from man, of man, and most importantly, servant of man. Okay? Um, there's this million-dollar word that we talk about once in a while that you hear here called the hyperstatic, hypostatic union. It's actually two words put together. I can't even say it right now because it's hypostatic union. Does anyone know what the hypostatic union means, what that phrase means? It means fully God and fully man at the same time. 100% this, 100% that. And so it seems that when Jesus is, is actually um, referring to himself as the Son of Man, that he's referring to that, that man's side of the hypostatic union. It doesn't mean that he's not God and he's only man, but he's, he is saying, I am fully man, and I have come from man to serve man. That's what he's doing here. So pretty interesting. Servant of man is kind of the, the biggest part. But Jesus is asking here for the word on the street concerning what these guys hear about him from others. And so we have the answer, verse 14, uh, which, which says, uh, some say that you're John the Baptist. And uh, others say that you're Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. So their answer is like super relevant for the time in which they lived and the place in which they lived, right? Uh, because they dwell in the midst of a people whose lives and thoughts centered around the scriptures, which at that time would be, uh, for you and I, the Old Testament. That's what they had. And <clears throat> so the overwhelming interpretations of the word on the street for who Jesus was um, came down to, besides Johnny B, like Old Testament figures, right? Um, that were both familiar and, notice also, special. Every single... Um, um, figure, interpretation of Jesus that they mentioned was a prominent figure in their culture. So Johnny B, obviously he was dead at this point, John the Baptist, for those of you who are just coming to church for the first time, uh, uh, he had already died at this point. And if you remember when we go back to chapter 14 at the beginning, uh, we see that Herod was freaked out after the beheading of John the Baptist, thinking that there was some kind of a reincarnation, that, that, that somehow John the Baptist had now become this character, Jesus, right? And he was kind of tripping on it, so that we know, we know that he had that idea. And if he did, there was probably, there was probably some other people that, that thought the same thing. Um, but uh, uh, Elijah's another one, right, uh, who did not die but was caught up, <clears throat> thought that he was supposed to come, you know, everyone expects that an another showing, another visit, uh, from this guy, and then Jeremiah, or maybe one of the other prophets. And I want you to notice that every single one of these mentioned are prophets. Like even John the Baptist would be considered a prophet. So all people's interpretations of, at this point of Jesus was of a prophet. So they were thinking right in that they perceived Jesus to be somebody big, somebody special. But they were wrong and that they're all shooting way too low, way too low, right? They're not high enough. Nonetheless, the bottom line is that there were many different interpretations that were out there floating around, which is the point, concerning who exactly Jesus was, and we in the world that we live in here today have the same exact thing. 
If you were to go down to the old mill district, as soon as church ends today, women, you're not, you're going to Lapine, and, and you were to go and interview, just like cold cock people, like down there, and ask the question, who do you say Jesus was? You're going to get all kinds of answers, right? You're going to get a lot. Um, this is a question that I always ask when, I'm, when I get the opportunity to witness to somebody. This is what it all comes down to. And so I always try to get to this point and get to this question because nothing matters more than this question like we're going like to see here pretty quick. But here's some of the responses that I most commonly have heard. Like, there's, there's a lot of them out there. First and foremost, he was a good dude. He was a good person, right? He was just a person, but he was a good one. He was a good person. With that, uh, a moral man. He was a good moral man. Um, a good teacher might be the one that I hear the most. He was a good teacher. Um, on the other end of that, I've heard, oh, he was just straight up self-deceived. Like the dude was, was not all there, right? Um, you may hear that he was the first created being. So the first of that which was created, not preexistent, but actually uh, created, um, I've heard an angel. There are, there's a prominent religion out there that calls themselves Christian that actually believed that Jesus was an angel um, and not the son of God. Um, I've even heard that he was Satan. Um, I know this sounds weird. I've heard that from two different people at two different times. There's this conspiracy out there um, that uh, you, you have this title, both in the Old Testament and in the New, of the morning star, Right? One of them's clearly speaking of Satan. One of them's clearly speaking of Jesus. And there's this whole rabbit trail that people go on to say that he's the same guy. Those are two sides of the same person. And a lot of people will deconstruct over something like this. Um, You will even still hear today, he was a prophet. Just like these guys are saying back then. You will hear he is a prophet. Um, Our uh, Muslim Brothers and sisters, this is exactly what they believe about Jesus Christ. He was not the son of man in the way that Jesus meant it. He was not the son of God. He was not the anointed one. He was simply another prophet. A great one, mind you, but only a prophet. So that's one that's definitely still out there. And all this is to say um, that um, we still have, no matter where you go around the world, if you ask this question, we, we, we end up with a wide and varied like, collection of interpretations concerning who Jesus is. C.S. Lewis famously developed what has come to be known as the Trillium. Is anybody, anybody familiar with the Trillium? It's a Lord, lunatic, liar um, type of uh, uh, approach to the answering of who uh, Jesus is. So you've got uh, basically three options, and anything that you believe or anybody else believes about Jesus falls into, ultimately, this trillium, like one of these categories. Um, Again, no matter what the answer is. So he was either Lord, like actually who he claimed to be and who he said he was, or he was a lunatic because he thought he was something that he actually wasn't, Or he was a liar because he pretended to be something that he wasn't. And no matter what you think of Christ, like, it falls down into this. And so C.S. Lewis actually has a really cool, it's a cool approach and and a good way to kind of not compartmentalize but categorize, like, where people are coming from. But um, the reason that it has to fit into one of those categories of Lord, lunatic, or liar is due to what Jesus clearly claimed about himself. Right? I mean, he did not claim to be a great teacher and nothing more. He did not claim to be another prophet. 
and nothing more. Like he, he did not claim to be a good law-abiding moral crusader and nothing more. Like Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be fully God, the Son of God, equal with God, eternal in nature. He claimed to be the, the voice of the burning bush. He claimed to be Jehovah. Before Abraham was, I am. That's what he's saying when he makes that statement. He's saying, I am Jehovah. Like, it's crazy heavy stuff, right? Like, um, Jesus goes now from a question that concerns the masses, like informational for him, even though I think he already knew. Um, And he goes from that question now to a question that concerns these 12 dudes that are like sitting in front of him. He puts them on the spot now. So it goes from what are other people saying to now, um, what do you say? Verse 15, who do you say that I am? To this day, this is by far, I promise you, the heaviest, most important question that exists for the human race. Who do you say that Jesus is? It's the, most, it's the heaviest, most important question that exists for you. Each of you, individually, to answer. Everything in your life now and everything in your eternity comes down to how you answer this question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that I am? He asks them. He asks these guys. This is the question of questions. And the reason it's the question of questions is because we are not saved based upon whether we believe in God or not. That is a very broad concept and word. We are actually saved based upon what we believe about God. There's a difference. Jesus said that he is the door, that he is the access point, that he is the only way. No one comes, John chapter 6, to the Father but by me. So there's, there, there's no other name under heaven in which man can be saved. It is, um, he is it because of who he was, because of who he was, because of who he claimed to be. Um, our prayer right now for Israel, guys, I know you're like, I think I had someone ask me this like yesterday, like, why don't you guys talk about Israel much? We, like, we care. We care about what's going on over there, okay? Just like we would care about any other war going on throughout the world. But our biggest prayer for Israel right now, our concern isn't like, are they going to rebuild the temple or is there going to be some weird treaty that's made or like all the prophetic like riddles that we try to put together. Our, our prayer should be that their eyes would be open to who Jesus was when he came because they really don't know that in large part. They call him a prophet or they call him a lunatic. They wrote him off. They murdered him. Because they did not believe he was who he said he was. Therefore, they do not have an access point to the Father. They are lost. Just because they, they, they ethnically are a Jew does not mean they get special treatment. They are just like you and I. There is one door to the Father for the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And they've rejected in large part that door. And so our prayer should be that through this trial and through this pressure that's going on right now, through this challenge that's going on right now, that they would be pressed into Christ, that God would give them a revelation that opens their eyes to where they go, oh, Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our hope. Don't throw anything at me. This is where it's going to get weird. We should have that same 
prayer for Hamas. We should have that same prayer for these people who know not what they do. They're, they're Ninevites. They don't know their left hand from their right. What's their only hope? That God would show them their left hand from their right. You know what I mean? The, there's no ceiling at the cross. I've had, I have these conversations with people where it's like, well, if you're a Hitler, you definitely can't be saved, but if you're this dude over here that just kind of like, you know, cheated a couple times and stole something when they were young, like, you're good. Like, there's no ceiling on the cross of Christ. Salvation of the Lord is for all who repent and believe, all who kneel at the cross of the, of, of the work of Jesus Christ. We need to get this right so that we go everywhere instead of just preferential places and people. We, we, we need to wish hope that all people would come to the knowledge of Christ. I mean, you're like, do you have any like backup for that? Yeah, the Apostle Paul. You know what I mean? Like, you want to talk about the worst dude? You know what I mean? Like, this, this dude, like, like, he persecuted with a vengeance the church of Jesus. <laughs> and Jesus saved him. Because there's no ceiling on the cross. Right? So we need to, you know, think about how we're praying right now and interpreting that which is going on around the world. But ultimately, everything over there comes down to the fact that they didn't, they didn't look at Jesus 2,000 years ago and go... He's the anointed one. They looked at him and, and, and called it something else. And they need to know. They need to know who he, who he really is, what he, actually, um, where he, what he actually came to do. So it's not, what, it's not that we believe. It's what we believe. And, and I'm not saying that you have to be a scholar. I'm not saying that you have to you know, go to seminary, right, or, or be like some theologian, like faith of a child is enough. But it, it does matter who we say Jesus is, who Jesus is, okay? Um, this is confirmed as we keep going, verse 16. Uh, Simon Peter replies to the question that Christ asks. Of course it's Peter, right? Like, who else would it be? You know, who else likes talking that much? It's always Peter, all right? Uh, you are the Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he says, which means anointed one, which means eternal one, which means deliverer and savior. You are the Christ. Um, most importantly, Christ means king. King of what? King of the kingdom of heaven. This is going to be brought up a, a couple lines down, so just kind of hold on to that, right? Notice also that he answers the son of God. He does not respond with the son of man. He says the son of God. So Peter, Peter confesses and he emphasizes the divine side in his confession. The divine nature of that hypostatic union, right? 100% man. Oh, but I believe you're also 100% God. You're 100% God, right? Fully man, fully God. So, so when Peter says you are the Christ, he's declaring that Jesus is not just another prophet, but the one of whom all the other prophets pointed forward to. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you are that one, the coming king that all those other prophets spoke of. It's you, right? Which is awesome because uh, this is Peter we're talking about, right? Like he wasn't like the sharpest tool in the, like this dude entertains us, you know? 
Like this dude often says things that are just like, oh, that was just ridiculous. I'm glad you said that, not me. You know, even though I easily relate to Peter more than I relate to any other character in the Bible. Um, like, like this is Peter. The dude wasn't always super sharp. He wasn't always giving the right answers, right? But he's just put his hand up in class and answered out loud. Um, and and he, he got it right. He got an A plus on the test, right? Uh, in front of these other guys, which is interesting. He aced it. He aced the test. And do you know why Peter aced the test? Because of what, says ne- what it says next. 17, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Peter aced this test. He gave the right answer because the revelation of Jesus as the Christ had nothing to do with Peter's IQ, nothing to do with his IQ, everything to do with God's impartation of this truth upon Peter. In other words, God leaned over and he whispered the correct answer into Peter's ear. Better yet, into Peter's heart, right? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, son of Jonah, is all that means. Bar is just son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. In other words, you did not come up with this uh, yourself, nor did any of your colleagues that are standing here around you today, even the smartest ones in the class, did not come up with this and then give this to you. But my Father, who is in heaven, gave this to you. How, How I know this to be true in my life, people. Oh, how I know this to be true in my life. I, I simply am not smart enough that I ever would have come to the conclusion of such a lofty thing on my own. I grew up in the church. I grew up hearing the word of God, sitting under the preached word of God. And I remember year after year after year, I wanted nothing to do with God. I wanted other things. I wanted my life to look this way over here and not this way over here. I I had desires and pursuits towards these things over here, not towards him, right? Until one day, Christ met with me at a heart level and gave me a revelation of the beauty and the glory of himself and the cross for me. Not only that, but it started with the reality of my need for something other than that which I had been chasing all of my life. It was a revelation of God at a heart level that changed this to where then I went, I don't want these things anymore. I want this. I need this thing. It was a spiritual act. It was a spiritual work. That's the only reason I'm standing up here today is because God gave me the answer to this question. And I know that we all kind of have some nuances with the way that we view this type of a a doctrine, but I'm just going to go ahead and say that's the only reason you're here too. If you, if you love Christ, if you pursue Christ, if you need Christ, if you have Christ, it's because God the Father gave you that. He gave you a desire and a passion and an understanding of that which is spiritually real. Spiritually real. I do not save you when I stand up here and preach. I am just an instrument, much like a pen or a pencil when you're writing something. That's all I am, and I'm a very poor one at that. 
a very dull one at that. But the only reason that I get up here, because this is intimidating, like just from, from a, a clearly human perspective, this is intimidating to get up here and talk about some of the things we're talking about. Sometimes it seems ridiculous to me. Like this is ridiculous just for what it is. But when you add the reality, the overwhelming truth that God saves people, not me, through his word, that he reveals and imparts revelation of spiritual things, it's okay. It's even doable, right? Because it's, it's what he does. And we're seeing this clearly here. There's no way Peter would have been a, a smart enough dude, right? I'm so happy for Peter here when I read this. I don't know about you, but when I read through this and I, and I hear a, a right confession, and then you have, you have the Lord, you have Christ looking back at him saying, blessed are you, Peter, because God, God gave this to you. You were, in, you were in the Father's crosshairs. He loved you so much, he cared for you so much that he, he gave you this thing that is incalculable in worth, the greatest thing you can ever have. That's how much he loves you. Blessed are you, right? The bottom line of what Jesus is revealing to us here is that our salvation does not come, you ready? You can email me later, don't care. <laughs> salvation does not come through self-revelation. It, it comes through God-given revelation that's directed specifically upon those whom he's saving. That's what we see in our Bibles. This is not something Jesus was ever obscure about. You did not choose me, I chose you, he says. And I know that to be true, again. It's the only way that I'd be here doing this, right? Many are called, few are chosen, he says. He was never obscure about this reality of God administering revelation that ends up in salvation, ever. We can sit around and we can be offended that God doesn't choose everybody, or we can absolutely marvel at the fact that he chose us. That's the weirdest part to me, that he chooses anybody, that he saves anybody is the weirdest part to me. Um, that we each individually were in the crosshairs of God at one point, from eternity past, before we did anything good or bad, before we ever had a thought towards him or, or anything like that, he saw us and went, I'm going to have you with me for eternity. This is crazy to think about. This is crazy to chew on and, and meditate on, but this is, this is what we're looking at here with Peter, right? Um, okay, 18, 19, we got to keep moving. Uh, so, uh, uh, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So we're going to go from controversial to more controversial. Are you ready? Super fun. I was amazed at like how, how much like, like controversial stuff was packed into this one little, little section right here. But it's about to get weird, because this part that we're going into right now has, has contributed in large part to the fragmentation of, of the church, of evangelicalism. There's people that just take these couple of verses right here and then shoot off and start their own church or cult or whatever you want to call it because of how they interpret these things. It's really, really interesting, and it's kind of above my pay grade, but we're going to try to keep it super simple, all right? So we're going to go from controversial to controversial. First is on this 
rock. On this rock. Well, what rock? We all know that it can't be Peter, right? Because that would be too Catholic. And I'm going to say yes. I'm sorry, I don't care what kind of gymnastics you do with your text or how you try to read this or how you try to play with the Greek. He is talking to and about Peter. If you noticed, there's a sentence here. The sentence is recorded really odd, like, like kind of weird. And I tell you, he says, you are Peter. And it's like, oh, thanks for like clearing that up, that you still remember my name. And that's not what's happening, but that's how it reads in our English translations. It's odd because the name for Peter in the Greek is Petros. And Petros means a rock. It means a rock. Okay? Thus the sentence would have sounded like, it should read, I tell you, you are a rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. I will build my church. On someone like you, you know, I'm going to build my church. Now, I do want us to note that Peter means a rock, not the rock. And this is where we're probably going to take the other Y in the road with our Catholic friends. It is a rock, not the rock. I also want to say that I do not believe Jesus is saying this to Peter because Peter's awesome. You know, I think we all know that. He's saying this to Peter because his confession is true. Because his confession is true. In other words, this confession of Peter is also, in a sense, the rock of the church. Which also means that Jesus, the one whom that confession is based upon, is the rock, capital R, of the church. So yes, yes, and yes, this is what we're talking about when it comes to rock. Yes, Jesus is talking to Peter. No, not the, Catholic, the way the Catholic church takes it. He's not a super soldier, okay? Like Peter was not the pillar of the church. He was a pillar of the church. After all, let's not forget that there were 11 other dudes that were standing there around him that day. Like, I know that him and Jesus are the ones that are interacting directly, but there were 11 other guys there, right? Um, in fact, think about this. Peter's the guy that the Apostle Paul, you know, the dude that wasn't there that day, that was, considers himself one born out of due time, but was an apostle to the Gentiles. This is the Peter that Paul would have to travel a couple times to Jerusalem to rebuke, right? And guess what Peter did? He repented. And so what we see is that there was actual submission that Peter had. There was actual um, accountability that Peter walked in. He didn't think like a pope or act like a pope who could not be corrected, who did whatever he wanted. He was a pillar. He was a rock. And so we reject um, where our Catholic brothers take this to the apostolic, the, 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 the papal succession that all came from Peter, and that's where we get one dude that holds all the authority and the keys. And No, it doesn't have to mean that. Peter is a rock. His confession is the rock of the church. Jesus Christ is the ultimate rock, foundation of all those who are his. Like, it's all built on on Christ. So, yes, yes, and yes. Um, Next, this is the first place in Scripture that we see the word church or ecclesia. 
That's the Greek word for church, and it's from the mouth of Jesus himself, which is actually kind of kind of cool. Now, these guys probably didn't think much about that uh, when they heard that because ecclesia was a commonly used Greek word, which simply means, you know, assembly or gathering, like, call, like called out, right? So uh, you can have any secular organization having an ecclesia. When a government would, would get together and, and convene, uh, the, it would be, you know, government officials would come in for that meeting. It would be called an ecclesia. Um, same with any kind of council that might have been happening or whatever. So it had a, a complete like secular meaning. But of course, we know Jesus is speaking of his eternal ecclesia here, which would be formed and built and bought by his blood. He's talking about his bride-to-be. He's talking about this right here that you and I are sitting in today, which, of course, is global. This is a sliver, right? But this is what he was referring to, which, by the way, is the reason the gates of hell will not, will not prevail against it because the blood of Christ is stronger than the forces of hell. It's stronger. What you and I are bound together with and by is unbreakable. You cannot sever it. It is bigger than that. The ecclesia of Christ is stronger than the ecclesia of Satan. The life Jesus gives us is stronger than the power of death. Um, and this ought to be an encouraging statement for us, right? Because what this means is that because we are a people through faith in Christ that have been built upon the rock of Christ, we are the only people that will survive the destruction of the universe. Do you realize that? Because of, who we, because of the ecclesia that we belong to. And when I say destruction, I don't believe in annihilation. I believe that Jesus is going to change everything. But when I say destruction, I know that everything that is, is going to go through fire and burnt up and changed and renewed. You and I, belonging to this ecclesia, to the church of Christ, are the only ones that are going to survive everything that's coming. Right? Jesus is saying here, the gates of hell will not prevail over that which is mine and those who belong to me based upon what? What have we just seen here? Based upon their confession, who they say Christ is, which means that those who belong to Jesus are a privileged people. In every sense of the word, you are a privileged people if you have Christ, right? And just as privilege in our day is known as something that we did not do ourselves, but something that we were gifted, something that we were born into, so too is our privilege in Christ with the Father. It's something we were gifted. It's something we were born into. It's not anything that we did on our own. Finally, the moment you've all been waiting for, keys to the kingdom, right? By the way, go, go home and dig into this stuff. This is super brief. If you guys are interested in this, go home, check it out. There's lots of materials out there. Um, some good, some bad. Be discerning. What does it mean, keys to the kingdom? First off, what do keys do? I need to keep things really simple because I'm not, I'm not that sharp. What do keys do? Keys are used for locking and unlocking, right? In this case, we would assume because it has to do with the kingdom and it's coming from Christ that it's something extremely valuable that's being unlocked or locked, almost like his safety deposit box, in a sense. Now, for some reason, when we see words like this, it's really easy for us to go all demon hunter. That's where our brain automatically goes when we see binding and loosing. We start just thinking of, like, the crazy spiritual realm. 
and running around and doing things with demons that I don't, I don't think we should. Um, but that's kind of where our brain tends to go. That's the kind of language it is, which, which, by the way, the apostles would do. They would run around with all kinds of authority doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, and so that, that would be a thing. However, however, stay with me, if we just stay within the context of the scripture we're in, the passage we're in, that has already been established here, it is one, I believe, the loosing binding that has to do with confession. Confession. A confession regarding who people say Jesus is. That's where there is authority being handed off to loose and to bind. Okay? So, to keep it simple, the church bases its reception or rejection of one upon a right confession. Let me say that again. We always have and we always will. The church bases its reception or rejection upon a right confession. That's what it does. Thus, unlocking or locking has to do with an entrance or an access to the kingdom, to God's people, to the church. There's a word which we don't hear too much in Protestant circles today, which I think is such a rad word, and maybe it sounds too Catholic for us. I don't know. But I think it's directly connected to what Jesus is talking about here. And that word is absolution. Anyone ever heard that word before? Absolution. And in this sense, um, in the Christian sense, it means to absolve of sin. So you almost think of like a confession booth, you know, where you see, you see one dude slip into one side of the booth and you see the, the priest slip into the other side of the booth and, and this dude's just unloading his garbage, right, onto the priest. And then at the end, it ends with what? Your, your sins are forgiven you, like absolution, I, I, I don't feel like we do that with each other enough. Do you, do you realize how powerful that is? When someone outside of you, right, someone outside of you absolves you of your confession, your repentance, your sin. So it's not me. I have a really hard time living with me. <laughs> I have a really hard time believing that God could really forgive, save, redeem this thing. But when I'm talking with someone else and I'm being honest with someone else about where I'm at and they have the authority to say, they have the, they have the guts to say, your sins are forgiven you. Christ paid for that. That changes stuff. We should be doing that regularly with each other. We should be confessing and absolving each other and walking in the power of how that renews us and it makes, it makes us whole again. It clears away the doubt again. It's like, oh yeah, this is, this is about Christ, and oh yeah, it's finished. This is what we're talking about. It is finished, because every day you're going to do something, or almost every day, um, that's going to tell you that he didn't pay for that, or he needs to go back to the cross to take care of that one, or that you've just blown the whole thing, and he's no longer going to strive with you, right? There's, like We have to live in this thing where we're constantly seeing the deficit and the flaws and the sins and the shortcomings, the ugliness, right? So we, we, need, we need to know that it's finished. Absolution does that. Based on what? Come on, people. Your confession. That's what we base it on. That's, that's the only way that we have the right to even say such a thing to somebody. How else can we know? 
right? It's based upon who someone says Jesus is. And if they have the answer right like Peter did, they should be absolved of their sins. And they should know it. Does that make sense? Think about it a lot of times in the Gospels. We see it here. We see it here, guys. A lot of times in the Gospels, we see Jesus go somewhere, wherever he is. He heals somebody. And then, he, and then what? At the end of it, he announces with authority, your sins are forgiven you. This is part of the reason these dudes were always looking to kill the guy. This is why they did kill him. It's because only God can say something like that. Right? Unless, unless God gave Christ the authority to say that. Of course, we know he was God. We know that he was without sin. But to these guys, he was just a, he was just a, a peasant. He was just a, a carpenter from Galilee. Like, who are you to look at somebody and say, your sins are forgiven you? And he did. Almost every time that he was, he was done with an interaction. What if this is what Jesus was giving to Peter and the other 11 that day? This authority to do that based on confession. Gosh, you guys, what, I don't, what, what's wrong with you? Thank you. What if this was what he was entrusting to the disciples that day, right? Um, let me put it this way. Every time that I preach the gospel, people will either accept or reject. Simultaneously, sitting in the same room, maybe in chairs next to each other, there's an exception that, like, something's required of you. You've got to do something with it when you hear it. Okay, whether you think you're doing something with it or not, or you're non-affiliated, it's not true. You're either accepting that gospel or you're rejecting it. And when that happens, you're either being loosed of your sins or you're staying bound in your sins. And it's all based upon your response, your confession to that gospel which has been proclaimed and preached. That's what's going on, and that is what I believe Jesus is referring to here. And of course, you know, verse 20, don't tell anybody. Uh, honestly, I just think, like, if you're a fan of prophecy, um, if you're a fan of digging into the details and, and just the small minerals <laughs> of everything that goes into the history of redemption, you'll know that it all comes down to perfect timing. Everything that was prophesied, perfect timing, God's perfect plan and perfect election. So details and timing, and I think that's all it has to do with, is don't go out and announce this yet. I'm not ready to die tomorrow, and I'm not ready to die next week. There's a few things we got to do first. I, I think it's that, okay? Um, and again, you can go have fun with that. So here's the conclusion. Notice the obvious progression that we have with this text. Confession leading to salvation. Salvation leading to the church. To the church. They are not separate. They are not bifurcated. They are not exclusive to one another. They are one. That's why we, we say that the church is made up of members only. Like, if you belong to Jesus, you are a member. So, so then you're either a disobedient member or an obedient member. But you are a member of the church if you belong to Christ. And we see this all tied together with that which Jesus is un folding here. This is why we reject people's thinking when they say, I love Jesus, but hate his people. I love Jesus, but I don't go to church because they're just dysfunctional. Well, well, yeah, yeah, we are dysfunctional. 
We are a family that's being redeemed, and we've still got our issues because we're traveling through the wilderness on the way to the promised land, right? Like there's still some dirt that needs to come off of our hearts and our brains on the way there. We're being sanctified. It's not perfect in here. But for you to think that you can go through this life as a follower of Christ and not have anything to do with that, man, you want to talk about dangerous? You want to talk about scary, right? Like, people tell me all the time, it's like, where, where are you at? I haven't seen you in forever. Like, oh, I go to the lake. Like, church for me is fishing. It's my pole and a beer on the lake and the perfect temperatures and setting. And it's like, that's not church. You, you may have a rad time of fellowshipping with God out there, but that is not the church. That is not where the church is found. That is not what the church does. The church, the ecclesia, is gathered together. And we're gathered together because we share the most important, necessary confession about Christ. Good? You need me, I need you. And that's the way that Christ has ordained it. That's the way he's built it, stone upon stone, just like Peter, he's a rock, not the rock, so he's just one of those rocks in that wall that Peter talks about, you know, built stone upon stone. That's what we are here. We're being built into something eternal, magnificent, glorious, that has no end, that can't be destroyed, that can't be deconstructed, even by the forces of hell. We are a privileged people. Lord, thank you so much for uh, your text, uh, even the stuff that's a challenge. We thank you for it. We thank you that you strive with people like us. I thank you most of all that you've, that you've given me a revelation that you're that you, Father, has, has given me a revelation of who your son really is. I feel like I would have failed this test if you left it up to me. And so I thank you for imparting that gift to me, even, even when I didn't have a thought for you or a work for you or a mind for you or a desire for you or a love for you, that you had all those things for me. And so... Uh, we, we credit you with salvation. Salvation is of the Lord. It is of you. And we praise your name as a result of that. In Jesus' name, amen.